Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on cyber.it using the discount code podcast. Everyone likes their privacy, but no one likes dealing with overly complex security measures. This week, we welcome back Josh Spinozo, co-founder of Shift5, and Matthew Dunlop, CISO at Under Armour, as they shed light on the top-growing competitive differentiators among consumers that market giants like Apple use to their advantage, plus an insider's POV on operational technology hacking. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Cyberry Podcast. I'm Jonathan Myers, Principal Infrastructure Engineer here at Cyberry. And today we have a special guest, uh, Matt Dunlop, who is the Chief Information Security Officer at Under Armour, uh, and returning guest, Josh Spinoso, co-founder at Shift5, and, of course, Mike Gruen, VP of Engineering at Cyberry. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing today? Um, if we can go around and do introductions real quick, uh, Matt, we'll start with you, and then we'll kind of do quick recaps on Josh and Mike. Yeah, doing well, Jonathan. Good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while now. Uh, good to see the beards going uh, going well. Uh, the haircut has gone a little bit shorter than the last time I remember, but uh, you know, but I'm sure it's uh, it's probably the you know the COVID cut in the mirror with the uh, scissors. Yeah, and I have another haircut this afternoon, so it'll be even shorter, except on the top. We keep that long because well, I keep it yep. about as long as I kept it as a cadet. I think mine I think was like that last was week. Long. Yeah. Mine was like that last week, but I decided, you know, to trim it up for this. Um, all right. So, Matt, do you want to explain kind of what you do at Under Armour, like where the CISO kind of fits in? And then we have a couple talk business plan and we'll go through that. Yeah, sure. So, um, so of course, you know, the CISO does normal normal things you expect a CISO to do at a company, especially a retail company. But what's interesting, you know, is uh, in addition to just the, being responsible for, you know, corporate security, you know, across all our global uh Offices. It's also you know the retail uh, globally, but more interesting is the uh, connected fitness side of the business, which most people don't even realize we own. Uh, the the My Fitness Pal application, the Map My Fitness, the Endomondo. Uh, so it's it's you know security of of course all the corporate retail and then all the connected fitness applications, and so uh, um, so lots of uh, lots of different unique experiences to um, you know to, to manage. Nice. And then um, just for some background for the audience, uh, Matt, Josh, and I were all happened to be at the United States Military Academy at West Point. At one point, I think Matt was my senior, I don't know what we call capstone advisor, if you will. Yeah. And then Josh was just there writing papers, not doing things that cadets do. Um, and then, yeah, we traveled a bunch. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Josh was and then, Josh was one of my cadets. I took to uh, West Point or to NSA one summer uh, as a uh, summer internship. Yeah, and then yeah, so we all kind of intersected, and then Mike's the lone the lone guy out. But Mike has worked with myself and Josh for the last what, like me, five years almost now. And yep. then Josh, that about right. what, and like Josh eight? was a little bit longer. Yeah. Yep. I think it was uh, 2012 ish, 20, I think. Yeah. I, I just have to um, tell a story about Josh before we start. Is I remember when we first went to, to the NSA and like three days into it or something, Josh had written some like 14 page paper that he presented in front of all the NSA. And, and uh, he's like, any questions? And General Alexander goes, Yeah. Are there any more like you? So, uh, so I'll tell that story because Josh won't tell that story. 
Yeah, I have a I have a similar similar Josh story about the uh, that one car ride that we did all the way down to D.C. for the Undersecretary of Defense, where we got like the flat tire and like the what was it the NPS students, the Naval Postgraduate School students that were like presenting yep. their two years of work. Yeah, you were just like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> So wait, today's episode is all about just Josh Lesposoza stories because I got a bunch. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, Jonathan Myers was also, was also the the president of uh, um, you know the HK, HKN, the uh, um, the uh, Honor Society, and uh, which was uh, as well as uh, he had a number of publications as a cadet, which is uh, um, not that common for undergraduate uh, student back then. Yeah, like compared to Josh's like a hundred, I had like two or three. <laughs> Let's be real. It was all about being able to get away from West Point for a week to go uh, hang out at an academic conference. Uh. <laughs> all right. So great segue into our first topic. So Matt, uh, you did a lot of uh, your PhD research and then research throughout the course of your career kind of in IP6 security, or do you want to kind of give a like a brief description of like, what that gamut spanned real quick, and then we'll kind of dive in. Yeah, so so when I went to do the PhD, I was, uh, you know, I, was, I would say I was initially motivated by, um, I didn't want to get up in front of my, uh, you know, my dissertation committee at my defense and have somebody say, you know, that research has already been done, um, and then go back to square one. So, so I decided to do my research on IPv6 since uh, um, nobody cared about it, and Frankly, it doesn't look like people care today. But, um, but anyway, uh, uh, so I w- went to Virginia Tech for that because Virginia Tech actually had a campus-wide V6 deployment, um, which is actually pretty cool because that meant that any work we did, we got to deploy in the live network and test it out. And so we were starting to look at areas we could do research on that that were kind of unique. And we 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 noticed that the uh, the way they did their addressing um, used what was called the um, the uh, um, stateless address auto configuration or slack and uh, it, it basically took them the for the host portion of the address it took the mac address split it in the middle put fffe in it and that was your your host portion across every network you joined so of course we were thinking hey you know we could track somebody as they move throughout a geographic area by just doing a ping script of all the um by just doing a ping script of all the uh, the subnets of that area. And so we were like, well, that's not very good for privacy. And so, uh, so then we started to look at how can we dynamically obscure that portion of the address to protect the, um, the user from being able to be tracked and then kind of exploded from there. And we just, and we started thinking, Hey, you know, this is actually a really good security technique in the sense that, you know, if you're constantly rotating addresses, you you can't launch a, a sustained denial service attack, a uh, sustained um, uh, TCP hijack, or or any of uh, a number of different uh, um, layer three or layer four attacks. And so, uh, um, so it ended up being that's where the direction we went was more security and privacy. Um, but we were able to develop a strategy that was uh, able to rotate addresses um, uh, mid mid uh, session without having to rehandshake. And so, uh, um, so we, long story short, we patented it. Um, I think they've actually uh, been future work or some subsequent work on it since I left on streamlining the protocol and making it so that it could be moved to mobile devices and even uh, used in cloud environments. So I think there's been a lot of work done on it since then. But uh, but that was the uh, 
the basis of the work anyway. Sounds kind of similar to like frequency hopping. Is it is, exactly. That's exactly how we described it was frequency hopping in the IP space. And the interesting part about it was, you know, people always ask, well, what about collisions or what about, um, you know, uh, uh, address space? Well, the address space wasn't a problem because it was, your address space was 2 to 64. So even if you had a million hosts on your subnet, your chances of a collision are still statistically zero. Um, and then if there was that odd chance of a collision, um, the only thing that would happen would be that uh, that one pop would, those, those packets would have to be transmitted. And if they were UDP, you didn't care about them anyway, so it didn't matter. And what, what year was this? Just some context into it. It was 2012. So eight years yeah. ago. And, and, uh, and, you know, we were all pretty excited at the time because they had sold the last block of IPv4 addresses. And we were like, oh, it's any day now. This is becoming, our patent's going, we're going to make tons of money off this. And, uh, and it's now 2020 and uh, nobody still uses IPv6 except for uh, the Chinese and the French. Is there money on which comes first, quantum computers like, or IPv6? I guess like an interesting thing is they're kind of starting to take that, right? Like so Apple in iOS 14 now does like randomized MAC addresses. So I think that kind of like, how does that kind of, I know it doesn't compare at all, but like, it seems like we're kind of moving that way. Um, how does that kind of... I would put my yeah. money on quantum computing. <laughs> well, so there were some privacy schemes that existed at the time, um, but they were all based on um, randomizing consistently. So it was a static randomization. So you'd essentially, you could, you'd either have the same address regardless of what subnet you went to, or you'd have a predictable address on different subnets. And so... Uh, um, so you could still track somebody by that. Uh, whereas we were using, um, in addition to a secret key, we were using a nonce. Uh, so it, it was truly randomized. But, uh, um, but you know, I think you're seeing, one of the unique things is I think you're actually going to see IPv6 stand up more in, in, uh, in underdeveloped countries than you're going to in mainstream countries. Because part of the challenge, and this is a part of the challenge I think we've all seen with technology, is it's, it's financially driven. You know, it doesn't behoove uh, the U.S. to transition from IPv4 because it's expensive. So we're looking for any strategy we can to delay that, that transition. Whereas if you're a new country that had never really developed, you can't afford to buy the IPv4 addresses. And all devices are um, native IPv6 now. So you just you could just stand up an IPv6 network. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's cheap because you don't have to pay much for the addresses. Um, and so I think you're going to see more uh, explosion of, of IPv6 out of um, out of those those regions. Also, like let's see, hop frog, you know, leapfrog ahead. I mean, that's where you know it's not just what's cheaper now, but also if you know if I was building a city, you know, thousands of years ago, it wouldn't have indoor plumbing. I'm building a city now. Indoor plumbing is going to be you know in sewage and the rest of it. So as a as those under you know underdeveloped countries are now developing and jumping, they can sort of leapfrog over some of the stuff that we've done, um, and have you know sort of be ahead. Whereas it's going to cost us a lot of money to to upgrade to get to that point. So I can see that from that perspective too. Yeah, and I still think you're, and also think you're still going to see uh, um, just the Internet of Things uh, continues to explode. It, it, it's inevitable that we're that we're not going to be able to just maintain uh, network address translation to be able to handle the IP load um, as you know everything gets uh, internet enabled. Right, you know, right. I just I say that as I just put out a, uh, a a refrigerator and freezer sensor in my garage freezer because uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't I didn't feel like it was con keeping consistent temperature. 
I was just going to say that conversation around rotating MAC addresses reminds me of like how even when we're designing new protocols, I wonder whether we're not just like falling into the same trap. So like um, Bluetooth low energy, uh, they all have these device IDs, right? Which are like essentially similar to MAC addresses. And I'm at least the, the, the microcontrollers I've messed with, like they don't set new Bluetooth um, low energy device IDs. So like, the same sort of tracking problem over again, right? Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know if we're learning our lesson. Well, it's an idea. It's not supposed to change. My favorite was all the IPv4 research where you saw that every researcher wanted to reuse those unused seven bits in the header um, to where, uh, you know, eventually you know, they were overloaded about 27 times. Yeah, and I wonder if it's even like, I wonder if it was like an actual trade-off that somebody like made that discussion, right? Because technically, theoretically, most IoT devices are all going behind some sort of NAT, like router or like home thing. And so it's like, does it really matter if it's super unique and things like that? Um, I I mean, I wonder, like, what is uh, the engineering cost on that? It's probably minuscule, right? Or I guess... No, it probably requires processing power. And as you're like building these IoT devices, exactly. you're like, oh, I need I need battery. I got to run this off battery. Like, why would I waste a couple cycles on battery? Um, yeah, especially like if that. it's going over RF, right? So like if you've got to broadcast the, the, the BLE ID every, you know, uh, every time you transmit a message, if you've got, you know, I think it's like 48 bits or something. If you're doing 128 instead of 48, that's like pretty substantial overhead when it's a tiny message, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just like, it's one of these things we're seeing in, in a lot of contexts is we'll learn all these lessons on the IT side um, and build security in finally. But then like when it comes to a new context, we're building, you know, tiny computers and they're going into operational technology or whatever. We just like, make the same mistakes over again um, and and then have to like go back and patch them 10 years later when it becomes a huge problem. It's even uh, not as much a, um, a technology decision as a cost decision at the time. You know, I think people recognize the fact that security needs to be there, but it's too expensive to put in. It's like, it's like, a, you know, everyone remembers the Blueborn attack that basically affected every Bluetooth device. And most of the Bluetooth devices weren't, you couldn't upgrade the firmware. So the the device the advice was you know turn them off when not in use. Well, what the heck kind of advice is that? That's horrible advice, you know. And especially if you're thinking about you know things like insulin pumps and pacemakers, I'm like you're not turning those off, um, you know. So uh, um, so I think you know as we as we read more and more about cyber attacks happening everywhere and every day, uh, you know, we've got to stop with this mentality of uh, let's just get the cheapest product out and actually think about you know upgradability and security and things like that that should have been in the design to begin with. Yeah, but I think I think the issue becomes, like, especially a lot of these companies that if you take, like, the traditional model of the last, like, five years, right, like a startup develops this IoT device, throws it on Kickstarter, and, like, gets it out the door, it's, they're not, I, I would say they're probably the first hundred people they hire are not security people. And so it's like, as the developer's making the MVP, he's like, oh, well, we can put that in later if he even thought about it. But chances are, he probably didn't even think about it. Um, and so he just like, I, I have this experience with certain devs, right? Like they hard code a nonce because they're like, ah, I don't want to import this library to be able to do this correctly. Like it's, it broke some dependency somewhere in my thing. Let, let's just hard code the nonce. And so like they make these changes 
And so they make these changes and it's like, you don't find out until like, I think it was a couple months later, you know, when you're doing like a code scan and you're like, oh, like, why is this set to a static string? Like, I don't understand. And so I think, especially if like a security guy's not your first hundred hire, like, when would you catch this? And it's like, oh, well, the firmware is already out there. And then I'm, I've never worked in this industry, but I'm sure remote patching firmware is one of the most stressful things ever, especially like early on before you have like super hardcore testing and things like that. Like I'd be afraid to do an appointment, like, right. Cause if you brick it, like you're, that's it. And that is one of the, the key compo- key considerations on the AppSec side is uh, um, and why, you know, a lot of tech debt is so hard to roll out because people, people look at the, you know, the, the, and I think this is probably the case across the board is, is the series of libraries that are, that are involved in, in the initial code uh, for any type of application. And your, your struggle is just to stay within, um, uh, you know, compliance, just to stay within, uh, you know, uh, uh, libraries that are still being, um, st- still being service or still, you know, not, not, no, not deprecated yet because, what you end up with is every time you roll out a new library update is you have to think about all the dependencies that might break. Um, and of course, if you're, if you're running, you know, a, a global application that has hundreds of millions of users, you can't afford to have uh, um, a library patch take down your entire uh, app. Yeah. And I would say that's like a full-time job. Like even at a small company that's just running like say Cyber, right? Like that could be a full-time job for somebody is just keeping up with a lot of these like dependency trees and stuff. Like thankfully there's like a lot of tools these days that kind of like help you through that. But like at the end of the day, it's it all comes down to I think is like how much time is I as the security person have to go spelunking through GitHub repos to verify like a dependency that's 12 levels deep, right? Like that takes some time. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, I, so I, I, I know in this ecosystem, we're seeing a lot of activity. So there's some big companies like um, Sneak and, and uh, Black Duck that are doing these like dependency scanning things um, for your applications. And like, I've just had a couple of, co- couple of observations about that space. Um, one is, I think we're still at the like the whitelist blacklist phase of, of that, uh, of that like, kind of cybersecurity product getting built like we're still very early days because like if you you know you have somebody that slips in an unknown malicious um bit of code into a dependency three levels down like you're not going to catch that with these products right and so like i think there's a lot of room for us to grow there uh, and the second thing is there's just no i mean i don't know if you've npm is a particularly egregious offender of this but like if you've looked at like npm node applications um just even pulling in react or something that's like a really simple like framework between the dev dependencies and the runtime dependencies you're talking about 8000 packages i mean it's just like it's absurd and there's there's no there's no way that a single person even full time could go through all those dependencies and like scan them for malware, um, you know, or vulnerabilities, like every time you need to deploy your application. So I think it's going to be one of the, like the big frontiers of cybersecurity that we're going to see. Well, I think you also, I mean, there's statistics out there that say that for every thousand lines of code, there's between 15 and 50 errors, you know? And so that's, you know, frightening when you think about how many lines of code go into some of these applications, but, but even more troubling is, um, you know, just the tendency to, uh, to bring on a third party, 
you know, API integration for things you don't want to do yourself, you know, like, Hey, it's not in my wheelhouse to, to do frame representation in an, in a streaming application or whatever else. And so I'm going to go to this company that does it. Well, you do that enough times and then you look to your, your left and right and how many third-party applications do you have in, in your, um, you know, in your entire application stack. And then, and then, uh, um, and then you start thinking about, you know, the cascading errors and, and, you know, and, and if one of those companies who's probably some small company has a, has an issue, whose name is it in the paper? You know, is it, is it that small company who nobody knows? It, it, it comes back to, for me, the, uh, I always keep remembering this one last year, the lab core and quest diagnostics breach that happened. If you look under the hood, it was neither quest diagnostics or lab core that got breached. It was APCA, but nobody knew APCA. So nobody cared. So the press pinned it on lab core and quest diagnostics. And that's and that's if you know the culprit is even a corporation, right? Like these days, you use so many open source frameworks with basically anonymous committers. Like you know, you're you're you know, you you may think as a corporation that you've got some sort of software that you develop, but like in reality, when you look at the code that's running on the machines that you're deploying, like a really small subset of that code is actually code that your developers wrote. Yeah. And I, I mean, I came from the opposite, right? When I started, there were no, I was doing C++ um, or NC, actually C, CGI is the, you know, it was 97, 98. So our ability to build everything was based on what we ourselves could code. Like there were no libraries. I like we had to like strings. I mean, I remember when we went to Java and we're like, wow, there's like Java util. This is amazing. We, we don't have to handle linked lists and... You don't have to write a linked <laughs> list. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so, and that was you know, so empowering. It's what's gotten us to where we are is that, right, Cybrary, we have, you know, a very small dev team because they focus on that small percentage of code that is in their wheelhouse. And we essentially outsource everything else to libraries. And, right, right so there's this whole risk. It's, it's, um, it's very, you know, it's very, like, for me, um, because I'm both the VP of engineering and head of security, uh, I see both sides of it, and it's it's really tough. And I, you know, the thing that I always keep in mind is the same thing that drove me at Red Owl, which is I never want to see our company on the front page of the, you know, New York Times or Washington Post or whatever as, like, being some sort of either breached or the source of some other company's breach, which would have been more the case at Red Owl. Right. And so... Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, a struggle. I think you're right, Josh. That's that's the emerging place, right? Like we're, there's no going back. We're going to have to we have to build on top of what we've built upon on top of what we've built upon. There's no like I'm just going to hire up a huge engineering team and do this myself. Um the build versus right. buy, it's if it's free, the 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 buy decision's pretty easy. Um so now it's right, how do you make it make that decision as low risk as possible? Yeah, and I mean it's it's oh, sorry. Go ahead, man funny as you as you you know because josh brought up the open source and how we're leveraging open source libraries and and so you see businesses spin out of that you know so now there's a whole there's a whole area of uh uh you know vendors that are that are coming out with uh you know software composition analysis that are uh that are designed to point out vulnerabilities in open source code so it's just uh, it's funny how these these things all propagate you're self-propagating totally yeah and and i mean you know to your point G, I think it's like the extremes are, they have to be wrong, right? Like if you're writing everything from scratch, you know, <laughs> using the C runtime, uh, you're, you're never going to get, your, your company's just never going to be productive. But then like, 
Yeah, we can all agree Adrenaline. that like is empty or is null or whatever it was that was like is the odd. That, yeah, is right, odd. Yeah. right. Whatever it was that was being brought in by every Way library because too, right, yeah. writing oh, was, a if statement was, was too hard. That was left pad. So was it left pad? Was, I can't even remember. Yeah. It was right. I mean, yeah, yeah there's definitely the a bounce. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 you know, I, I think you know you shouldn't be writing your own crypto libraries. You know, to to, to kind of like an earlier part of the conversation. Like if I think abstracting out like oh okay i need to do um I, I need to hash this message with a key and then like basically making smart decisions around uh what are the defaults for that so that you're not like messing something up that's critical but like kind of hard for a non-crypto person to understand or god forbid rolling your own crypto like we should definitely be using third-party libraries for that kind of stuff but there's like where is the gray you know there's a gray area in the middle so i don't know maybe it's maybe part of like engineering has to be regularly reviewing the dependencies that you've brought in for a release and like having a conversation, maybe it's a cross-functional conversation with like the security guys to say like, Hey, here's a list of the stuff that we've brought in. Like, do you have any objections to this? Or, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but you know, that meeting, that meeting's never going to happen, but sorry, Matt, go on. <laughs> I think part of the challenge is, is having the, uh, um, is going back to the the underlying operating system or the underlying platform that it, that it rides on, you know, and and how that is handling the different integrations. Because, you know, I, I fully believe that you, you know you gain a lot of value and efficiency from leveraging a company that that's what they do. I mean, that's their their bread and butter. But then you have things like you know iOS and uh, and cascading permissions. You know, if you grant permissions to uh, the camera roll, you're essentially granting permission to every you know, third-party app that might leverage the camera roll, which, you know, you may not want to grant those permissions or may not even need to. Yeah, and I think, I think, well, I think they're getting better. Like, I think finally, the privacy and those types of things, like at least in like the iOS and the mobile ecosystems are kind of raising that bar, right? Like, especially iOS 14 now, like does that like, do you want this app to like add track you type situation, which is gonna, which is gonna stop a lot of that random stuff. But, but yeah, I think that's kind of raising the bar. But what I'm kind of wondering is like, how do we, cause like I would say IOT is probably one of the greater attack vectors that we're probably gonna, just get hit in the face with in the next five, 10 years. It's like, how do we get them to start doing things better, right? Because I think it's super weird because if you think about it from like a securities perspective, like 10 years ago, if somebody would have said, hey, take this box and just plug it into your network, right? You'd have been like, no. Like there's no doubt in my mind that you would have just said like, no, I'm not going to take this random box and just plug it in, right? And so we've kind of gotten to that place where it's like everybody has their own home network and it's like you, everything connects to the internet and you just buy it and you take it home and you just put it on your network, right? Like we're not all super networking gurus like Mike who has like nine different VLANs separated by physical routers and wears a tinfoil hat. Like the average consumer is just taking box and plugging it in. And, you know, how do you start to like get these IOT devices up to a specific level or, you know, maybe there's like a rating or some sort of like privacy thing that kind of goes along with it because like all of this security stuff exists, right? Like if you look at how them liable, I mean, just to jump in, I mean, you need to, I think we've had this conversation, right? Like, um, the, the motivation is always financial, right? And so there's gotta be some sort of, if, if, if these, 
it's sort of the best practices. If you're not adhering to best practices and you're allowing these things to happen, then you need there needs to be some sort of liability. That's one way. I'm, it's not the only way, but that's we've seen at least in the U.S. that that money tends to be the big motivator, which means regulations and legislation and other things that you know most of us don't really want more of. But like that's what I think moves the needle for a lot of companies. Um, that's yeah. just my you know. I, I think and. I'm not even clear how you do this, but I think one really promising way would be like educating consumers. So, so in other words, if, if, if the person that's buying the device is like discerning, you know, you're, you can create like a market for having a bar for your, for your security. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think to some extent, you know, maybe it's just because I'm a security enthusiast, but I think some of the, you know, press around Apple, um, you know, emphasizing user privacy and things like what, whether, you know, when you agree with that or not is, is totally separate conversation. But I think that they branded themselves really well as protecting user privacy. I think, um, uh, that has become a competitive differentiator for them. There's certainly like some set of consumers that really value that, um, uh, that property of Apple products. And so, I, you know, I wonder whether at some point we can educate consumers enough so that they know like they're not going to buy an IoT device that has a reputation, you know, from a manufacturer that has a reputation for not really caring at all about, uh, you know, security or or like actively like subverting user privacy or whatever. I don't know. I feel like that's got to be the answer at the end of the day because everything else is sort of like, you know, regulation and things that are hard to enforce. Uh, whereas, you know, the market speaks with its moving feet. So to, to use a mixed metaphor. <laughs> I think you probably could have stopped that last conversation with uh, educate the consumer. Because, um, you know, <laughs> that's one of the problems. I mean, there is, you know, we're putting technology in the hands of three-year-olds and we do nothing, absolutely nothing throughout their educational journey to teach them how to use anything. We say, have a nice day. Good luck. Best to you. I mean, and you talk about educating the consumer, but look at the uh, the the Huawei 5G rollout. Like that was like nations and corporations that like didn't do their due diligence to see like, oh, they're they're siphoning off data or like things like that. Like if we can't expect them, right? Like those, you would assume some of the people demoing those systems are technical experts in their field, right? Like I don't, I don't know if we can expect the average consumer, especially the rate at which these devices are kind of coming to market. I do think one way is kind of, it's like a weird backwards, but I think Apple might be able to kind of push it. Um, I think it was like Apple, Google, and somebody else created this like smart home alliance or whatever to kind of standardize on protocols. And I think as those, I think we've kind of, I think we've all kind of agreed like the, like the home kit, the Google Home or whatever, uh, and then I guess Amazon has their Alexa enabled. Like those are kind of the frameworks that everybody's starting to play into. And I think maybe if we kind of, if those alliances step up and start putting in these types of controls to be like, in order for you to be HomeKit enabled, like your security has to be at this level or they start building it into like their home kit control, right? So like the Apple TV that controls all these home kit things kind of says like, oh, here's where we draw the line. And it almost becomes like to put it in, I guess, easy context, like an iOS device, like requesting permissions on your network per IoT device. And so you can be like, 
Yes, my Alexa does not need to be able to scan for devices on my network, you know, like all of these types of things. And so I think that could be an interesting way to kind of push it because I, I don't think the consumer education thing, I think it's it's growing too fast, right? And it's, I would say after you reach a certain age in your life, like you're just not able to pick up things as fast when it comes to technology. And so you're already behind on like how like an Alexa works. And so now you're going to add in another layer of like, oh, this other competitor, are they as secure or things like that? Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. So my skeptical mind immediately when you start talking about an alliance of, you know, Google, Amazon, Alexa, you know, the rest of them, it's, that's just raising the barrier to entry for other, for other people to play in that space by doing this thing, right? Like there might be some benefit to the consumer, but basically what they're saying is we're yeah. the only ones who are allowed to spy on you. Um, that's, that's just where my head goes because I wear that tinfoil hat Jonathan alluded to earlier. But I do agree. I mean, I think there's some, some definite, like if we can get like, you know, look at Apple, right? If they source their devices and the, like, the components and everything else from good places, then so on and so forth, and you can sort of build up. And so it's also not just about the it's the device manufacturers, but those devices. There's a whole logistics of smaller devices and smaller devices. Look at a car. Uh, Josh can probably speak a lot better to this than than I can. But all of the devices that are in a car and making sure that those are adhering to good security. And I'm sure there's going to be companies that can sort of trade on that name and and will take it seriously. And so it's not so much about educating the consumer as much as maybe really touting your your ability to, to be in there. And I think as more hacks and more problems occur, I mean, um, people are going to take it more seriously. It's, it's, it's going to be the point at which, you know, it's just raising awareness more than education. People are now more aware of, say, what happens in Facebook and how Facebook operates than they were a bunch of years ago. I've never had a Facebook account. I've always known those things. It's why I wasn't there. Um, and I think just... M- more things happen, more news. And so I guess it is a little bit about educating people. Um, so, so you're implying that the, the CAN bus in a vehicle isn't the best uh, isolation network? Oh, we've had I that can... discussion so many times. <laughs> That's old hat around here. Uh... <laughs> so, I mean, like, it would be interesting because I think, especially with all the new connected car products and things like that, I wonder if it's going to come to a point where it's like you basically buy an add-on for your car that like plugs into the old school port that just like adds a layer of security into your car. Huh. Right. Like I might know someone who's starting a co- company, something like that. This is a yeah, really that sounds really idea, interesting. Guys. That seems like a great it's company really idea. Do you know anything about that? We could, we could like, it would be like intrusion detection, but for like yeah. OT, right? Man, someone should patent that. I think. But I think, I think it'd be interesting. <laughs> idea. You, should start, you, know, you, you could, should start a company on that, Josh. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I mean, like, we did skip over this part of the. I mean, we we started talking about haircuts before we got a chance to actually introduce <laughs> Josh and what his company does. So, for those who maybe haven't tuned into previous episodes, they might be a little lost at this point. So, Josh, do you want to just give a quick like why we're giving sure, you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Shift Five is a company I co-founded um, two years ago, uh, and we we make an uh, intrusion detection system for um, we call it planes, trains, and tanks, so that you know our grandparents can tell their friends what we do. Um, but yeah, it turns out you can hack, um, uh, OT operational technology, like, like a train or a tank or a, or a, or a vessel or military systems. And, um, that's pretty bad. 
and you should, you know, we, we, we think it's important to put security products in place to try to keep that from happening. I was just I trying think, to think, I was just trying to think about what I could say about that. Cause I did, uh, I did work with, uh, Josh's, uh, other co-founders on a project similar to that when I was still in the military. Um, and so, we have hands-on experience uh, yes, from all aspects of the life cycle. Test that it is, um, it is a significant problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, there's actually a, uh, there's a, a, the Government Accountability Office put out a report that's unclassified. So I, I pretty much only talk about details that are in there, but, um, you know, they, it, it, you can just download on the internet. They'll, they'll tell you how bad the, uh, the problem is with military platforms. Oh, I should look that up and then I can figure out what I can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have this like vaguely looking like fighter bomber stealth aircraft thing that they just like, they call like a, you know, military platform and, you know. So like kind of around that is I wonder, so like take Tesla, for example, right? Like they reinvented the car for the most part, but like, did they spend any extra time on those types of like systems or were they doing like a trade-off analysis? Like, oh, this stuff kind of works. People don't really know how it works. Like we build the bare minimum there and spend all of our R&D money into batteries drive trains, like that type of thing. I wonder if that kind of concept came up because they were just, I don't know if that juice is worth the squeeze at this point. And so, yeah. Yeah, so they um, so they have a really like, I think avant-garde, you know, security perspective. So they, they like can pretty regularly donate like Model 3s to, um, to, to hack the car kind of events where they'll like, allow security researchers to try to, you know, penetrate the the security on the system. From my recollection, it's typically focused around like the sort of infotainment system and the, the like remote access components of it, um, which is obviously a hugely important part of it. Um, like, unfortunately, just going back to sort of protocols having fundamental issues uh, and what Matt was alluding to with with CAN buses, like they are single collision domain. There's no security built in. And it's a fundamental protocol problem. So there's really there's really only so much you can do unless you're willing to just completely reinvent how serial communications work in a in a in an OT um, system. So you know I, I I'm not aware of whether they put. Uh, intrusion detection systems like on the the serial data buses like sort of the the control lines of the uh of the of the car um but i do know that they they've done a pretty good job from from what i can what i can tell on the like sort of you know it side of it the 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 ethernet switch side so i think where this problem if i can predict the future is going to rear its head right so like fast forward i think five years maybe 10 years right where autonomous vehicles are just driving around, picking people up, dropping them off, and nobody is like in the car outside of the passenger. I now have physical access to this car that's probably not mine, right? Like it probably is talking back to a bunch of company servers that's managing the fleet and like things like that. How do you, like you're going to need some sort of like intrusion prevention system or at the least detection system that's going to be able to like basically kill that car's internet connection and take it offline and things like that. And I think nobody's, I, I, maybe there are smart people out there thinking about this, but I think that day is coming a lot sooner than we have started to think about like, right, because we kind of do it with planes. Like planes, aircraft systems are pretty hardcore, solid with like all the testing and all the like physical access type stuff to prevent things like that. Now, 
I wonder how many like incidences it will take for like an autonomous car for somebody to like, oh, well, I popped the dash, I plugged in. I'm curious and, like, though about the, although, although my understanding use, on airplanes is that that's not actually the case. That no, you because if you, clearly if you use your Bluetooth device during takeoff or landing, that thing's going down. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I'm saying at least like the software they chose that like runs the aircraft systems is not using like Node or like some of these modern frameworks, right? Like it's all written in, is as my professor from West Point will tell me, Ada 95, right? Like it's written in these very low level languages that like it's a lot harder to exploit. Whereas like you take a Tesla and you look at the infotainment system, like I'm pretty sure that's running what node or like some other sort of like modern web framework that has probably all these Android, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And so it's, it's a little bit, the, the uh, attack surface is probably a lot greater on these cars. Right. And especially if like somebody's in a car they don't own, they can pop in a thing and it's like, oh, well, now I own this car because like you can't talk to it. You can't control it. It's not going to tell you where it's at. Chop, chop, totally. gone. Yeah. I mean, I just think like we, we have to learn lessons from the past. And so when you think about how you defend an enterprise network, there's all, you know, there's, there's so many facts. I mean, this is, you know, Matt knows more about this than, you know, and, and, and Mike know more about this than anybody at CISOs. It's like you have all of these different components of the system and you have to think about how your security measures like nest together. And, you know, where I think we are on a lot of this IoT or OT security is we're starting in, in a, you know, it's good. We're, we're like, we've got attention to it. We're starting to put me- security measures in place. But like things like monitoring, we're just not there yet. You know, it's just like I, I remind, you know, I'm reminded of like the old uh, thing, like obstacles are only good uh, as long as they're, they're, they're monitored, right? Like the... Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think you just need belt and suspenders. You need to do all of these things. You got to try and mitigate risks where they are. You have to put security measures in place, and then you also have to monitor things and 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 um, you know for for unknown unknowns. So Josh is going back to my old comment engineer days. <laughs> we're really in minefields, um, but you know, and, and that's you know the 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 point that you're making about the. Uh, you know, the, the, the old network defense, you know, you've, you've seen that shift in strategy from the, what I like to call the Tootsie Pop defense, you know, the hard outer shell in the GUI center to, uh, um, to just isolating as much as you can. And that's, that hasn't happened on the vehicle side at all. And so, uh, well, I would say it's still operating under the Tootsie Pop defense, but it's actually just, there's no hard outter shell. It's just a GUI. Just that's right. GUI. <laughs> the hard, hard outer shell is, is the literal shell. Like it's like whatever. Right. It's actually just a tootsie roll. It's a, it's it's a tootsie roll defense. That's right. <laughs> but you know, I think more and more people are realizing. You know, everyone's heard the adage: "Just not a matter of if; it's a matter of when." And so you try and isolate portions of your network as much as you can, so that if the bad guy does get in, um, you really minimize the amount of damage they can do before you're able to mitigate that. And so, um, you know, I think that has to happen. Uh, across, you know, everything, you know, and I think, you know, to kind of go back to a point that Jonathan made earlier uh, with regard to, you know, security being built in and consumers being, you know, wiser to the security uh, uh, components of the things they buy. I think the problem is that consumers are, are, are shopping with their, um, you know, from a financial perspective instead of a, uh, instead of a security or, or, you know, uh, or reliability, not reliability, more probably more, but less security. And so, uh, you know, if you, you, I guarantee you, there's only a few of us that are going through as we're shopping for a, a new whatever 
in looking at can you update the firmware, uh, what security mechanisms are in place, what type of encryption is it using. Most other people are going, how many stars did it get and what was the price? You know? Definitely. Yeah, and I think what's kind of, I think, scary, right, like, is the rate we're adopting these physical devices and then just, like, we got to go back to the past, right? But if you look at, like, container security and, like, modern cloud stuff, right? Like we're, we're still fighting that battle, right? Like containers kind of get that whole like, oh, well, let's, let's sandbox this one isolated process so that if somebody gets in and things like that, but like, we've only seen that in the last couple of years. And, then and that's now actually interesting because of- I was going to bring that up is in the yeah. physical world, right? Like in the virtual world, in software, what we do, virtualization has really push things forward. We can put things into containers and now this thing that maybe this developer wrote doesn't need to be quite as robust because we know we're putting it into this other thing that's going to, you know, it's still has these, it's just shells. Um, We've come a long way since real mode operating systems, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, but what's the, what's the equivalent in the hardware? You know, there's, there is a point at which it's just prohibitively expensive to take. real mode operating systems. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I mean, like I could see, you know, like in my, in like my naive view, I could see like, okay, well, we just take some components that run the old way. We put them inside a little box that does some sort of, that, that its job is to take whatever that insecure protocol was add the security to it. So the only insecure bit is between that little thing inside the box and then the container it's running in. And then we can put all these things in the cars and, and, and magic. Yeah. But the, yeah. the, the reality is that all of those containers are prohibitively expensive um, right now. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. And it's, it yeah. comes down to processing power and battery or power like consumption, right? Like totally. just to do encryption, like you have to what double, like if you're doing like an arm thing, like just to get encryption on there, you just basically have to double the processing power of your your thing that yep. you needed pre-encryption. I and can't I think- tell you how many like microcontrollers that I've like messed with that actually can't handle doing like a TLS handshake because it, it just would take them 10 minutes to like do the math. <laughs> so when I'm turning my car to the left, that would be bad? <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that is, you know, the the driving, you know, that and the and the battery consumption are driving factors behind. Uh, in fact, you know, there's been research that's even been able to tell uh, when an attack is happening on a on a microcontroller by power output because you know you can see the battery consumption. Yeah, yeah. It's I, although I mean I, I think it's like easy to get into a nihilistic place about all this because you know it's it, the state of security is pretty bad. I think like. There are a couple of things that are happening that make me at least a little bit like optimistic. Um, the stay at home orders. You know, one, one thing is that um, there's just been a really like a, a huge boom in like the microcontroller market. And so we're seeing these like really incredibly powerful microcontrollers hitting the market that are pretty cheap. And like you're, you're seeing more and more like kind of even what would normally be PCB design, just like hard circuits, like move into software on the um, the microcontroller, which at first glance would seem even worse of a problem just given like how bad the security is. Like I actually think what we're going to see is um, just for developer productivity reasons, more and more of operating systems starting to exist on these, on these um, microcontrollers, like more frameworks for like rapidly developing applications. And I think that sort of thing is actually really good for security because if you've got like, 
sort of frameworks that allow developers to work at higher levels of abstraction. They don't have to worry about the details and the details are where they get things wrong and they create security problems, right? So I, th I think we're moving in the right direction. There's like this one company called um, Particle. I was messing around with this little IoT board. It's got like a CAN bus and like some like GPIO pins and things. And it's like, you actually can't write firmware for it. There's an operating system that sits on it. You like, you know, dork around in your Arduino ID and it sends code down that either like transpiles into or something, but it's like run in a harness. So it solves all the like the updating parts and like the telemetry and the uploading and certificates and everything, it's all managed for you. And, and so um, I, I think we'll start to see more of that just for productivity reasons. And in, in that sense, like I think like economic incentives and security could be aligned, you know? Yeah. And I think you can add like baseline security to stuff like that, right? Like when it boots, like let's do a checksum on like the boot image and things like that, where it's like you're killing attacks pretty early on and it kind of like just barely raises the bar. And so, but I mean, yeah. That's why my car malware waits until you're going 30 miles an hour before it uh, does anything. Yeah, that was funny. Those, those are some of the things we considered in, in some of the uh, uh, work we were doing. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, you know, but as well as, you know, a removable checksum, you know, where, you know, it's, it's sort of like a key, you know, like a, and I guess it is a key, but I mean, you know, like a physical key to where, you know, you can't, because that was one of the issues too, is, is there was a possibility of, of, of uh, manipulating the checksum so that, you know, your malware would, 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 uh, um, would check. Yeah, and what's doing the checking, right? Is it the... Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, do you think... I think this is interesting. Do you think Apple's kind of leading the way almost in some of these things by the way they've kind of moved their chip development in-house and how they start to think about like secure elements and like all of those like fancy things they're now like baking into even the like chip on your watch, right? Like I think that's absolutely nuts how like secure... Apple Pay is on your watch because they have like certain elements that are basically hard coded off of certain paths because they're able to own the whole pipeline. I don't think any other chip manufacturer is at that level yet that can start to do that. But I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's a fundamental shift in how people can start thinking about chip design now and developing these things. And we kind of get less software, more hardware type controls now that we're able to fit more and more stuff on smaller and smaller chips. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely, I, I, I think you're right, Jonathan, like we've definitely seen huge progress on the hardware side for like security primitives. I mean, even if you just look at like the, um, the Intel instruction set, even like there are AES extensions in there because of a class of cyber attacks that like a bunch of researchers found about like timing and things. And so, you know, those got integrated. You're starting to see like, you know, trusted platform modules and all these sorts of things. So like, I definitely think like we're seeing a lot of progress where at the lowest level, things are getting more and more secured, you know? On, on Apple, they've really have taken, uh, I, th I think probably the leading uh, edge on, on just pushing security out. Um, you know, you hear people complaining about it, but uh, about some of the things that, you know, like the co consistently getting reminded, Hey, do you really want to still share this? You know, but, uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's a move in the right direction. It's, it's, you know, making sure, that uh, that they're protecting the consumer's data, you know, and, and as we see more and more regulatory fines for for data exposures, 
you know, I think everybody's going to start having to go that direction. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm pleased with the with the additional diligence that Apple's put toward um, toward security. Yeah, I think it also it gets back to like the educating the consumer, right? Like the consumer knows if they got a pop up on their phone that it was like asking for their contacts, right? Where I would say five years ago, you would have just been like, yeah, sync my contacts. But now that it's almost like the like Windows when Windows first did the uh, was the UAC, I think is they call it the little like command prompt that's like, oh, do you want to run this like thing that would take over your screen and cause you to like pause and look? I think yeah. now we trusted that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I think now like iOS and bringing it to like devices that you look at many, many, many times a day um, kind of just raises that because you're, you're much more aware, I think, right. As opposed to just pushing something in an app where a developer kind of hid the feature into like a cool looking button, you know, and it's like, Oh, I want to click that, yep. you know, but now that it, it takes over everything and it's like, Oh, I have to like, I can't do anything else here until I agree or disagree. And I think maybe that's a way they're in improving the consumer's perspective. Well, it's also interesting to me, you think about, you know, that I actually trust more my Apple Pay than my credit card. You know, and, and you know, imagine that five years ago. You know, there's no way I would have <laughs> felt that way. Yeah, yeah I mean, for sure. I, I wonder. I wonder why that. I mean, I. I mean, I know why that is. I definitely trust that more now. But it's also because if you think about the security model around credit cards, right? It's a totally, it's a totally shifted thing of liability and cost and whatever. Like, oh, the credit card will just pay, off, you know, whatever and fifty dollar. Whatever you're liable for this amount, and the credit the bank will handle this because they're just dealing with such large amounts. Um, in all these, uh, um, in all these payment, you know, point of sale devices. You know, I don't even trust putting my uh, credit card in in them anymore. Yeah, like yeah. if you, I don't know if you guys have spent any time in like these POS systems, but like a square, right? Like every time you make a charge, like in the POS system for that facility or that business, like it keeps a record of your name and your credit card number and like how many times you use your credit card there and all of that stuff. I'm sure they'd probably hash the credit card number and things like that, but like they're still tracking it based on this credit card number, right? Like it's that one piece of identifying information that they have um, to kind of track your history, whereas Apple Pay now just randomizes a thing, right? So it goes back to your, your yeah. PhD research where like, yep. oh, if we can just randomize this, you can't track me as well. And it starts to, you know, obfuscate like what I'm doing, where I'm spending, things like that. And that's what, that's what I like about it is it, it essentially provides a one-time credit card number, you know? I mean, granted, they have put, they've done a lot of work, you know, and I can, because I can tell you, because we've rolled out, you know, we have payment point of sale devices across our entire uh, retail enterprise is, you know, they, they've done a lot of work to ensure that that, that you know, that payment chain is secure. Um, and there's, you know, compliance checks you have to do it every year and stuff like that. So, I mean, it is secure, but, but, but it is still, to your point, Jonathan, you are still using that same, um, you know, number. It's not, it's not randomized at the source. Right. I mean, the, the fact is it does, I mean, it's the same, whether it goes back to the credit card company or in Jonathan's, the, the square is a great example of that. I mean, I was, can't tell you the um, first time, like it sort of occurred to me what happened, which was we went to um, like a Lego fair out in uh, Reston, bought some Legos for my kids, paid with a credit card. They clearly, you know, used a square, you know, whatever. 
Uh, and then uh, a couple days later, I went and bought coffee at a different, uh, at a place nearby. And I got an email receipt to uh, the email address I had given to the other company because I use a different email address for every single vendor. And so I was like, wait a second, why did I just get this coffee receipt sent to this email address? And then I was like, oh, they must be using the same crap behind the scenes. And it was very like frustrating. And I would much prefer to have just totally randomized credit card numbers, you know, every single time, get a new virtual card for every single place. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's... And then I think the problem with that is how do you get them to remove that email from the system? Right. Oh, don't because, even, yeah, it was a hassle. So I had that problem similarly once. Um, Tommy Thor, that you guys probably know, um, like came to visit and we went to somewhere to get like tacos out of a food truck and like just happened to swipe my credit card um, and put in his email address. And so he starts getting email receipts every time I go back to that taco truck, which happened to be like down the street from where I lived and he was visiting. So he leaves and now he's like, man, you eat a lot of tacos. And I was like, wait, what? And so I had to go like, I had to tell them that like I needed to remove this email address, right? But the problem is that employee that's like inputting and selling stuff doesn't know how it works. So luckily I convinced her to turn the terminal around, let me go in, find my record in the POS system and delete the email address. But like, that's a security risk right there. Like, you know, cause it's an iPad protected by zero, 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 zero. Right. So social engineering and it's, uh, you know, at play, but, and I think this also gets back to, I mean, to what Matt was saying, which is I think larger retailers, I have much less concern when I go into larger retailers about their POS and, uh, I do always find it amusing that they're called POSs because I think they're aptly named. But um, it's the smaller ones who are like, hey, I want to get up and running. I, you know, And so I'm going to use this iPad and plug in this little device that plugs into my iPad and lets you swipe a credit card. And it's you know, blah, blah, blah as a service. It's you know, payment as a service. And it's, it's a very different type of POS than, say, the, the Diebold machines and the rest of them that are really going in. Um, not to... not suggesting that they're a good machine or a bad machine. They're just the first ones that came to mind and the only ones I know of. Um, but yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting um, that it's, again, that sort of cost thing of those smaller companies aren't really concerned about your privacy. In fact, these loyalty programs that are like, hey, yeah, let's use this third-party company who's going to run our loyalty program for us and do all of this stuff. And like, there's actually like this crazy notion of like, um, I remember when I got that email because it was sort of like there was like a shared loyalty program between all of the vendors that were using this one payment processor. Um, and so I could earn points, you know, buying tacos that would also, you know, that would get me discounts on Legos um, type of thing, uh, which was not Sounds what like the I wanted. perfect combination. Like, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's, it's, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even thought about like the small businesses because it's like, yeah, they're small businesses. Like they don't have this overhead to get like these super advanced systems, but like they're touching just as valuable of information that these very large corporations are touching, but the budget is nothing compared to a security budget at a large retail organization. Right. And so I think that's a, that's an interesting attack vector that it's so cute that Jonathan thinks we have a large security budget. <laughs> well, much more than the taco truck that, you know, has one system, you know, but 
Yeah. Uh, by percentage, it actually uh, might be, you know, percentage of gross, it might actually be about the same percentage, which what we, what, what I've, uh, I've, one of the things I was talking to um, some researchers who have seen that like the percentage of your budget for security, it's actually got to go up increase as you, it, it, it can't just be a percentage. It's actually got to be increasing. The more, the, the larger you are, the more and more you have to spend. Um, it's not just uh, a simple function of, oh, 10% should go towards security. It's, it's um, because as you get larger, you have more third parties. You're depending on more and more and more and more things. Um, and it actually becomes an increasing cost um, as it relates to your overall revenues, um, which is always it's interesting. Really, I almost think that it needs to go up regardless because if you if you look at you know I like to use the military analogy because it's it makes sense to me is you know you look at the domains of land sea air um, they're all we're all they're they're not growing we keep the same amount of land the same amount of air the same amount of space I don't know you can factor in global warming and all that but aside from that cyber is growing at an exponential rate it just continues to grow and the barrier of entry is extremely low so even if you do nothing at all the attacks against your infrastructure just keep growing and growing. And so you've got to continue to just invest in improving it. And, uh, and, and I think what you're seeing, especially with COVID is, is it going the opposite direction? And so, uh, and, and, you know, there's no right way to answer that because as the company's revenue goes down, they can't afford to spend as much on, on that stuff, but, but it's the, it's the reality, uh, you know, and, and meanwhile, the attackers are working from home too, so they got kind of more time on their hands, you know. And yeah, so, I wasn't trying to suggest that you should be spending, le- but in terms of the, I, I agree, you always need to be spending money. No, no, I'm, based I'm on just, that. right. But I'm yes, I agree, that, and I also yeah. agree that right that right now with all of the shifts that have happened with COVID, there's there's more incentive, there's more people out of work, there's more, there's so many. The the, the attack surfaces have increased, the number of attackers have increased, and people are working I, remotely. Right. And then on top of all of that, cybersecurity and all the risks and all they continue to accelerate, you know, at a, uh, at a pace that's, you know, unprecedented. So of course, like, this is like, like, just really bad, right? You have because there's just more people, more opportunity and, um, and more incentive. More IoT devices getting plugged into their home network that has their corporate computer on it now. <laughs> Uh, doing uh, schooling from home. Um, and we all know that kids are, you know, very security conscious. Just mine, actually. So, which is always funny because they... Actually, like, I believe that. I actually no, they, they totally are, right? My oldest is very funny and he'll, say, he'll mention like, can you believe the teacher has all of our passwords on a piece of paper in her desk? I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's to your Chromebook and <laughs> it's the school's property. But yeah, um... But yeah, I think there's the there's the threat for IoT from in terms of you being hacked. But I think also all of the the potential for DDoS, like just massive reflection and and, and magnification of attacks on other systems, where it, you you yourself you're basically your network is getting slowed down. But really, what's happening is all of your IoT devices have just been turned on to some other target. Um, that and and so it has a small impact on you. The consumer, but really, it's they're they're doing something really nefarious, and I think we've seen a very small percentage of IoT. Like there's this there's a sleeping dormant giant out there, and we've only seen small attacks come from it. 
Um, and it's just a matter of time before somebody harnesses it and really does something pretty devastating. Not to be too nihilistic, um, but that's sort of my, that's my big fear when it comes to IoT. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's a lot of evidence for this, like, you know, the Mirai botnet and like, you just look at all these like vulnerable, unpatchable devices that, you know, I don't know what the, I, there was some uh, like, there's some article I read a couple years ago about, uh, it was like some vigilante who had like written basically um, an, an exploit for a whole bunch of these like unpatched, like end day um, vulnerabilities and um, uh, sorry, a payload for it that just like bricked the device. <laughs> I, I don't remember what he called it, but essentially he was just scan the internet for like vulnerable devices and brick them because he's like, hey, if this is just hanging out on the internet, I'm not the only one that's doing this. I'm just going to take this thing off of the uh, uh, off of the internet off the internet for the greater good. <laughs> I'll tell you though that the the chip in the in the Under Armour connected shoe does upgrade the firmware. So it, it is upgradable. Well, hopefully it's not just sitting on the internet and this guy just goes out and bricks it for you. <laughs> no, but everybody should go out and buy like seven pairs, seven or eight pairs. <laughs> just because I said that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just waiting for it to like become a package on Kali Linux and then Cyberary can just get hit by this IoT bot device. And uh, that'll be a fun day for me, I bet. Um, well, I don't know what really you do taking about a turn. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know what you do about that. It's like, it's almost like a common good problem, you know, when you think about, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, whether consumers are smart about stuff or not, they're like sort of bo- the, 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 they're operating at their own risk, right? So like, if I'm not security conscious, I put some horrible device on my network and it gets popped and then like, I lose a bunch of they pivot onto my laptop and I, I get like, you know, financial transactions or whatever. Like I, I bear that cost. But like, if you're just maintaining a bunch of unpatched devices in your home network that are continue to, you're, they're going to continue to work even if someone like launches a botnet attack from them, like the, the counterparty that has to deal with the results of that is not the one that's like responsible for patching their device. If that makes sense. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how you solve that problem. It's, it's like, it's like, uh, almost like pollution in a way, you know, I had a scary, I have a scary vision of the future based on just what you said there, where basically insurance companies, home, you know, like in order to get homeowners insurance or renters insurance, this is now going to be part of the policy and they're going to be scanning your, you know, your house and devices, and you're going to have to pay more if you have too many or or maybe they'll just you know you can just pay them extra and they'll run the bot that automatically kills all of your I, bricks your iot devices for you uh to, to lower your liability it's funny you start to see companies that offer cyber insurance um uh having a a uh, a war clause you know like if if you know if it's considered an act of war they don't have to pay well how do you figure a cyber attack isn't an I mean, where does he, where do you draw that line? I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's at the insurance company's sole, sole discretion that. Yeah. Yeah. The best advice is steer clear of those. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I've what always, was, I've always, oh, go ahead. Andrew. What was that company? Wasn't there, so they've like kind of like thought about this, I think, right? Like if your router company is able to like detect a bot, like a global bot attack, right? And your router company can push an update like real quick over the air to shut down like anything on your network talking to this. I forget who it was. I think there was a company 
that like, I think it's like some of the ISPs, right? Like the ISPs sitting in their global knocks start to see these attacks going and then they just start cutting pipes. But I think if we could get down to like the lower like home router, like the com like the Comcast one that's in everybody's house or, you know, whatever your main provider is, that I don't know, that's probably super tricky, right? Like it phones home and like, you know, it's responsible for filtering traffic on your network. It's probably a bad, but, you know. I mean, I think, I think it's cute that you think that they're not already doing that. But anyway... I'm sorry, right. Matt. What were you saying? I got it. So no, I said I think it was well, Kaspersky and Huawei. I I got it though. I, I got this solved. So we're gonna let the government put a backdoor on every device, and then when there's a problem, they can just go in and fix it. Oh, I, I trust that. Recurring theme. I think, we also, done, I think we're done here. I think we. I think it's we perfect. It. Yeah, but they need to have single sign-on. They need to have single <laughs> right. sign-on into your device. I mean, who doesn't trust Bob at the FBI? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, all right, guys. Uh, great discussion today, Matt. It was great having you, Josh. Always great having you back on the podcast, uh, Mike. I see you every day. Um, still great seeing you on the podcast. Um, so that wraps it up for this episode of the Cyberry Podcast. Um, please check us out on the website cyber.com. Matt, you got anything to say? Closing arguments, things like that? No, great. Thanks for inviting me. It's good uh, good chat and good to see uh, both uh, you and Josh again. Yeah. It was and very nice meeting you. you. It was nice meeting you and uh, I feel much better about uh, going out and buying some Under Armour uh, uh, nice. gear. So, yeah. Buy lots. Buy lots. Buy lots. And, and despite what you might believe, this, spot, this uh, podcast is not sponsored by Apple. Uh, so we just talk about it a lot. <laughs> Although it could be, I mean, if you're from Apple and you're interested in giving sponsorships, uh. <laughs> it is that. All right, guys. Awesome. Great talking with everybody. Thanks. We'll see you guys next time. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry podcast and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.